Exodus chapter 12. If you are new with us, you have missed a lot. Uh, But we've gone through all of the nine plagues and we're at the final plague this morning. And this is, as Shane prayed earlier, it is a sad text in many ways because judgment finally comes to Egypt and uh, a great cry, uh, a great wailing occurs in the land of Egypt. And this week, I was reading the text and studying it and preparing as I normally do, and I was just struck with the sadness that must have uh, permeated Egypt on that uh, fateful night when the Lord finally poured out his judgment. We uh, opened the text together in Exodus 12, 29, a great cry in Egypt. Now it came about at midnight. One of the renderings is it happened at midnight that the Lord struck, Exodus 12, 29, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. And then Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, there's our title, and there was no home where there was not someone dead. Pray with me, Father, thank you for the reality of the Bible, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the, the beauty of grace and compassion and the reality of judgment are all within the pages of Scripture. The Scriptures do not hide these realities. One thing that we do know, Lord, is that you are a God of patience. You have been so patient with us. You don't want anybody to perish but all to come to repentance. But there is a time when you warn and warn and finally judgment day comes in this case, Judgment Night. And we know it is something that breaks your heart. You take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, you tell us in Ezekiel. And yet, here we are looking at this judgment, and we do know that there is a judgment to come. We know that you will, there's a day of the Lord coming, a second Passover when you will judge the world. And and the real difference on that day will be whether or not the blood has been applied to our lives, the blood of the Lamb. So help us to have a sense of urgency, not only for our own uh, security in you, but also to share the good news with others. And bless our time together. May you be glorified and may you give us understanding. May we apply your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say? Amen. Amen. Now, like a lot of stories that we might read in a book or otherwise, now it came about, or it came to pass, or it came about at midnight. Now, we are told that the, this was the time that the Lord passed over. It was about midnight. In the ancient world, I think people went to bed a little bit earlier, so people would have, been, would have gone to bed for the night, and the Lord struck at midnight. It happened at midnight. That the Lord struck. I want you to notice that it is the Lord that is executing the judgment, and he, he struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Notice the sweeping descriptions. This is a good way to think about this is from the greatest to the least. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, that would be the prince of Egypt, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Literally, the Hebrew here is the pit house. And all the firstborn of the cattle as well. So the Lord struck from the palace to the dungeon, from the palace to the pit house, and not only that, but to the stall where the cattle were. And death enveloped 
Egypt on this night. And this, this is a hard thing to take. It's a sobering judgment. It's the final plague. And it's the sad consequences of many years of abuse, slavery, and rejection of God. It had built up over decades, perhaps even centuries, where the Egyptian people enslaved the people of God and they suffered cruel bondage. They were abused and beaten and treated like they were just, you know, cattle to serve the purposes of the Egyptian people. Romans 2, 5, and 6 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of his righteous judgment. Who will render? God will render to every man according to his deeds. The judgment for Egypt had stored up. It stacked up, stack upon stack upon stack, and God waited and God warned. And he had warned Pharaoh on multiple occasions. If you flip back to Exodus chapter 4, look at verse 22. Just to remind you that this was a long time in coming. You shall say to Pharaoh, God is instructing what to say to Pharaoh. He's instructing Moses, thus says the Lord, 422. Israel is my firstborn, or is my son my firstborn? So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. You won't let my firstborn go, which is the nation of Israel? Then I will kill your firstborn. And this is what we might call divine retribution. At some point, if someone doesn't repent like the Pharaoh, if they are stubborn, then God will mete out judgment. Take a look at 319, just so you get a little bit of a picture of Pharaoh's heart. The Lord says, But I know, 319 of Exodus, the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all all my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it, and after that he will let you go. And so the Lord had predicted what was going to happen, that Pharaoh would be stubborn, that he would fight God, that he would stack his sin one upon another, and finally he would let the people go. In Exodus 11, this is a message that Matthew shared with us. Look at verse 1 of Exodus 11. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Skip down to 4, 11, 4. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn, 11, 5, in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, a little stylistic variation from chapter 12, who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there should be a great cry in all the land of Egypt. So the Lord foretold this, just as there had not been before, and such shall as never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me. He's talking to the Pharaoh now, saying, go out. You and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So you can see that Moses on multiple occasions warned the Pharaoh, 
told him what, it, what was coming, and we've already dealt with nine plagues, nine radical plagues, where devastation has come to Egypt, so much so that the people finally say to Pharaoh, don't you understand that Egypt is ruined? Are you the only one who doesn't see what's going on here? You've been ravaged, you've been defeated, you've been beaten, but the Pharaoh continued to harden his heart and he dug his heels in and God confirmed that hardness in his heart. And the oppressive Pharaoh, one who was in, on the throne before this one who did not know Joseph, the book opens this way, had caused the death of Israel's baby boys. We know that Moses escaped this. Remember, his mom put him on the Nile and made a little, tenderly made a little basket for him, and he was discovered by the daughter of the Pharaoh. That's the only way that Moses survived. And at first, the Pharaoh had told the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1.16, every Hebrew female that is born, let her live. But if it's a male, when the, when the Hebrew woman is giving birth, kill it. And the Hebrew midwives said, no, we will not do that. We will not destroy these children. And the Lord blessed the midwives. And in Exodus 1.22, the Pharaoh spread out his edict and he said, I want my people to do this. And the implication is that the people of Egypt killed the Hebrew baby boys. And the the Nile was turned red with blood. That's the blood of the Hebrew babies. And the first plague in Egypt was God turning the Nile into blood. At, at, to say at least in part, you've done this to my people, I will kill your God. I will kill the Nile River. You're not to treat my firstborn this way. You're not to treat my people this way. Saul, Saul, the Lord Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, why do you persecute me? When you hurt my people, you hurt me. When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it for me, Jesus says. He's directly connected to his people. He feels our pain. He knows our sorrow. And the Pharaoh had perpetrated all kinds of crimes on the Hebrew baby boys. He had killed many of them is the implications of the text. And Herod had even done the same thing when Jesus was born. Herod was freaked out and trying to protect his throne and the Magi came to him and Herod said, oh, go make careful search for the child and when you find him, bring him back to me so that I might worship him. And all God's people said, liar, 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 you're a liar. He wanted to kill Jesus. And what's interesting is that an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream when Jesus was just a little baby or a little toddler and said, take the child to Egypt to escape Herod because Herod wants to destroy the child. He wants to destroy the Messiah. And Joseph obeyed. But we know what happened in Bethlehem, right? That all the Hebrew baby or the Jewish baby boys, two years and old, uh, younger, were killed under Herod's decree. And there was weeping in Bethlehem, and Rachel, pictured here in her weeping, refused to be comforted because her children were no more. You have to understand that when God's judgment finally comes on Egypt, much blood has been shed. Much evil has been perpetrated. God does not take pleasure in judgment. But finally, judgment does come. And Egypt, as I mentioned earlier, had ample warning. And finally now, judgment is realized on this night. And it is interesting, uh, Joseph did take Jesus to Egypt, and uh, then he returned back, 
Jesus had his own exodus out of Egypt, returned back to the land of Israel, then ultimately grew up in Nazareth. This is Matthew 2.15. He was in Egypt until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. Jesus is the ultimate Israel. He does a second exodus. He goes to Egypt for a little while and returns back to the promised land and then fulfills the imagery of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just Israel's sin, but the sin of the whole world. And so Pharaoh is now finally tasting divine retribution. Pharaoh and Egypt are now paying the price of justice. From the palace to the pit of the dungeon, in the place where the cattle would be kept, death was all around Egypt. Death had surrounded the nation. We've been through a, a scary last year, and you know we're hearing now uh, talk of a variant of the, the COVID virus, and we know those early pictures when we were seeing pictures in Italy and other places of people you know, in hospitals and you couldn't even get enough body bags and stuff like that. And there was a scary virus that hit our world and it's still around. And we have a better understanding of it today. But we have been through something like this. And of course, not to this extent, but certainly we've been through something like this. And here's the question that I would ask of you. And I would ask it of our world. What have we learned? What have we learned in terms of our own response to God? Well, Pharaoh arose in the night 30, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great wailing in Egypt. There was no home where there was not someone dead. Now, we know that the Hebrews were instructed to put the blood on the doorposts and on the lentil of their house, and their doors were sealed with the blood. And the destroyer came, the angel of death, on that night, and I'm sure carefully investigated each house. And when he saw the blood... Everybody was protected. But not one home in Egypt was spared this death. There was no application of the blood there. And I I would submit to you that the Egyptian people had heard about this. They knew what the Hebrews were up to. They knew what God had warned the Pharaoh. I'm sure talk had spread, but there was no application of the blood in Egypt. And the question becomes, One for us to ask, since Egypt is a symbol of the world, is how much application of the blood of the lamb has happened in our land? Let me ask you a question. If we were to be able to get an insight into what households or individuals in our own city were, were sealed with the blood and who was not, let's say in Corona, let's say that the Lord gave you an aerial view of houses that were sealed and houses that were not, How about if we spread it out to Southern California? How about if we took the state of California or the United States of America and we got a true picture of who's sealed and who's not? What do you think the percentages might be? And what might that do to our own passion for evangelism and making sure that we are right with the Lord? Well, the Lord struck around midnight. And I would imagine within minutes, perhaps, no more than hours, discoveries of death were being made all over the place. I would imagine because word traveled about 
what was warned to the Pharaoh that maybe parents didn't even sleep that night. Maybe they, were, they stayed up. Maybe uh, it was a restless evening for many people. And the Pharaoh, the, notice that the text starts with the Pharaoh, that the Pharaoh arose in the night and all his servants and all the Egyptians and the prince of Egypt was dead. The heir to the throne. Do you know in, Egyptian, in the Egyptian uh, pantheon of gods and goddesses, the Pharaoh was supposed to be a god. He was the next god for Egypt. He was the visible manifestation of the sun god, Ra. He was supposed to be light and life to his people. And now he was dead. Their god was dead. The heir to the Egyptian throne was gone. And I'm sure that word began to travel quickly. The prince is dead. No, the prince is dead. And then can you imagine, if we put it in a modern scene, can you imagine... A city where maybe you got an aerial view and you can see light after light come on in households and then you just hear wailing cries. All over Egypt, not one house didn't have somebody dead. Cattle were dead. And it, it's a sad, sad scene. And it reminds me that the Bible says that death is no respecter of persons, right? It went from the palace to the dungeon when death hits, it hits. And the truth of the matter is that the wages of our sin is death. That's why we die, because we've sinned against God. And God is the one responsible, as hard as this might be for us to take, to bring death into the world. But he also brought a solution into the world. He brought a savior. He brought the Lamb of God. He allowed his son to take our place to pay our redemption price. But the reason we die is our first parents blew it. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And they died. They died spiritually. They died in the most important relationship in their lives, that is, to know God. That's the most important thing that you and I can do, is to know our creator. And loud wailing permeated the land of Egypt. Each and every household, the light came on and there was someone gone. Loud wailing into the early morning hours. It is, it's so hard when we lose a loved one, right? It's so hard to deal with this, this death issue. I don't truly know how non-Christians deal with the death issue. I, I don't. But I know I was there at some point. I know at some point I didn't have that hope. But the good news is that we have a hope to preach that is far beyond the grave, amen? amen? Death does not have the final word in the gospel. Jesus does. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. We don't have to fear death because our God has settled that question and death's sting is no more in the gospel and in the resurrection. Death will die. Death itself will be plagued. Hosea 13, 14 talks about the plague that will hit death. And Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians 15 and says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Paul begins to mock death itself. How could he do that? Because Jesus Christ conquered death and brought life. You can clap for that one. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen. This is what we believe. We believe in a resurrected Christ who's alive and still saves. But Egypt didn't know that. 
Egypt had a weird religious view of things. They, they spent much of their lives trying to appease, appease gods and goddesses. They didn't even know, you know, really what to expect from these gods and goddesses. They had a weird obsession with death. That's why you find these mummies in history and, and all of this weird stuff that they believed. They, they worshiped idols. They had a fascination with death, but they didn't know the truth. And right in the midst of Egypt in Goshen was a people group who had the truth, who were enslaved right in the midst of the most powerful nation in the world. And here we are, the church, living right in the midst of probably the most powerful nation that the world has ever seen. And we've been sealed with the blood. Now, can you imagine if you were in Goshen that night and you weren't gonna go outside because you were told, don't even open that door, don't go out and look. But can you imagine hearing the cries? I mean, you, you would know what God told Moses. Word had spread. You were packing a bag because you were getting ready to go in the Exodus. But loud wailing coming from all these corners of Egypt. And I'm sure that if you were an Israelite, you had to be experiencing a number of emotions. One is great gratitude. And the second was probably great sadness. Great gratitude for your own salvation, knowing that it was only that blood that protected you and your family. And at the same time, hearing the loud wailing from people who were essentially your neighbors and saying, oh, oh God. The reality of judgment isn't pretty. You know, sometimes we might wish that our enemies would taste you know, of the judgment of God until we see the reality of what it is. And I'm sure as the wailing went forth, there was a lot of deep emotion. The book of Revelation repeats uh, some of the plagues that were experienced in Egypt. And it says this in Revelation 7, 14, it talks about a group of people who all of a sudden appear in heaven. Revelation 7, 14, it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There's a second Passover coming. The Lord is coming again. And when Jesus Christ comes again, there will be another plague of darkness recorded in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. And the thing that will make the difference on that second Passover night, if you will, will be the same thing that happened in ancient Egypt, whether or not you're marked by the blood of the lamb or not. And if you're marked by the blood, you will be safely brought into the promised kingdom and if you're not marked by the blood, you'll be under the judgment of God. A second, a second Passover is coming, brethren. This is not just some ancient story that we look at as spectators. We are living the salvation story, but there's a second Passover coming. And the good news is that those who overcome Revelation 2.11 will not be hurt by the second death. Death, in the ultimate sense, has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. And so the Pharaoh called for Moses 31 and Aaron at night. Uh, we're not sure if this was a face-to-face -face meeting because of something earlier that had occurred. Let me just comment quickly. In Exodus 10, the Pharaoh gets mad at Moses and he says, don't ever see my face again for in the day you see my face again, you will die. And Moses says, you're right. I will never see your face again. And Moses walked out. 
So this perplexes some scholars because they say, well, did Moses see him again? Was this just a moment of anger? Well, the language allows, see the word called there in verse 31? It allows for the idea of proclaim. And so it may be that simply the Pharaoh sent a message to Moses and Aaron. And finally, releasing them says, rise up, get out from among my people, just as the Lord had said, both you and the sons of Israel, go and worship the Lord as you have said. Okay, I give up. Take both your flocks, 32, and your herds, as you have said, and go. Get out of Egypt. Go. For how long have we been studying? Let my people go. No. Let my people go. No. Let my people go. No. Digging his heels in. Now he's like, get out. Go now. Some of you have family members like this. Sunday morning comes and they say, go. Go to church. Good. You need it. (laughs) I don't need it. But they whoosh you off to worship probably so that they can have control of the remote, don't you think? I mean, whatever. Isn't it funny? We have some people in our lives that are like, they're cool with you worshiping. Go ahead. Yeah, go to church. It's good for you. You, (laughs) No, no. We all need it, right? And then the Pharaoh says something pathetic. He's just lost the prince of Egypt, his firstborn. His whole land is reeling from his poor leadership. And what does he say? Oh, and bless me also as you're gone. Could you, could you bless me too? How pathetic. What, what does he want? His whole life has been devastated. Maybe it's something like this. Could you bless me also so that there's not a second plague of death? Could you bless me also because I got a lot to rebuild here. We're going to have to find another heir to the throne. We got a lot of rebuilding. We got a lot of graves to dig. He wants a blessing now. You know, in the Bible, the word bless means the hand that covers. And it's this idea that when you bless someone, you're basically invoking God to be benevolent to them, to be kind, to fill them, bless them, give them shalom, peace, cover them. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the lesser is always blessed by the greater. And it's interesting because if you rewind the tape in the land of Egypt, there was a blessing given by a patriarch to a pharaoh. You might remember that old Jacob, there was a famine in the land and Joseph got sold into slavery by his brothers. And he ended up ascending to the Egyptian throne, really second highest leader in Egypt. And finally, Jacob, old Jacob, makes his way to Egypt. And that's how the people end up in Egypt in the first place. He's the the patriarchal father, the father of the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. And as he ends up in Pharaoh, uh, in Egypt, he actually blesses the Pharaoh. He actually uh, asks God to bless him. That's the last time we know that this kind of scene has happened. It's cool when you can bless somebody. There's a number of ways that we can be a blessing to people. But one of the main ways that we can bless people is to pray for them. Even when people persecute us, we're supposed to pray for them. We ask God to bless them. I I can't extend a blessing in and of myself, but I can ask God to bless people. And not just when they sneeze, right? (laughs) Why do we do that anyway? I don't know, that's some tradition about 
when you sneeze, I guess you lose a second of your life or something like that, so be careful. Some of you sneeze in machine gun fashion, and we got to really pray for you, but anyway, never mind. It took death for the Pharaoh finally to surrender. I've seen that with a lot of people, people who grow up in church, have been around the things of God. I've watched a lot of memorial services over the years from a place like this, watching a group. And I've seen a lot of people get right with God when someone dies. Don't wait. Because sometimes that's what we do. And God's so gracious that he will certainly redeem us even then. But we waste precious time when we do stuff like that. Was there a blessing for Moses to give to Pharaoh? No. There was no blessing left to give. Do you remember when uh, Isaac gets ripped off of his blessing, his, his birthright and blessing from Jacob? First, uh, Jacob rips off the birthright by basically he's made some stew. It was New England clam chowder. Do you guys remember this story? And Esau comes in from the field famished and he says, give me some of that stew. And Jacob, who was a conniver, says, well, give me, give me your birthright. What good is a birthright if I'm famished? Esau was like a teenager. He hadn't eaten in 45 minutes, you know. <laughs> I had 17 pancakes, but that was an hour ago. I'm starving. Well, you want some stew? Give me, give me your birthright. And you can have some stew. You ate the stew. Birthright's gone. And then Jacob steals the blessing from him. Remember, he dresses up like he's got hairy arms and his dad's old and can't see. And he steals the birthright and the blessing. And, and finally, Esau says to his dad, Isaac, is there no blessing for me, father? And Isaac says, I've already blessed your brother, Jacob. You guys know that Jacob and Esau represent two nations. Jacob rep represents Israel. I've already blessed him. Esau represents Edom. This is really the bigger explanation of passages about Jacob and Esau. If you read the book of Romans and study some tough passages with this kind of language, you need to understand that God is specifically dealing with nations here. Esau never served his brother in his lifetime, but Edom eventually would. And the book of Romans, I think part of our understanding of the book of Romans needs to shift, that what Paul is doing in Romans is correcting some prideful behavior on the part of Israeli people, Hebrew people. Here's what the problem was. When Gentiles came into the church, they had issues. They didn't think that Gentile people should be in the church. And Paul is correcting them in the book of Romans. It's something that we have to understand. And I just want to share something that I heard from Vodi Bauckham recently about what's going on in our country with all the division about race. Vodi Bauckham said, you know, in the Bible, the Bible knows nothing of multiple races. We are one race. Amen? We come from one couple. Adam and Eve, all of us. And then eventually from Noah's three sons, right? We are all human. We have one race. That is the human race. The only difference between all of us in this room is where we hail from geographically 
and how much melanin we have in our skin. Bodhi Bauckham said, just because I have more melanin than you, God's blessed me with more melanin than you, sorry. That's the only difference. Wherever you come from, whatever your skin color is, we are one race, the human race. Enough of this stuff about multiple races. The Bible knows nothing of this. Now, what we do know is that we are multiple ethnicities coming from different geographical areas. And the ancient distinction that God made between peoples was not the color of your skin. It was actually whether or not you were a Jew or a Gentile. That was the only distinction that God made. And you know what was the sign, whether or not you were a Jew or a Gentile? It was an outward sign indeed. It was called circumcision. And Jews and Gentiles in the early church were having a tough time getting along. And largely because there was some pride among the Jewish people. And the Gentiles came in with some different you know, perspectives and, and the like. And that was the ancient divide in the covenant people of God. And they had to get over that. But no matter where you hail from, no matter what amount of melanin you have in your skin, this is Bodhi Bakken speaking, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think the enemy has done a tremendous job in dividing us with some categories that are, they begin with a lie. They're a lie. We're all one race. Now, has there been terrible things perpetrated on people because of the color of their skin and their origins geographically? Yes. Sadly, yes. But enough is enough with that. Don't you think it's time that we, we got the biblical categories correct so we can love each other as God has called us to love each other? There's a narrative going around that's it's destructive, and just to be candid with you, it's wrong from the very foundations of what it claims. It's wrong. It's not biblical categories. It's not how God sees us. And so there was no blessing for the Pharaoh, and the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead, verse 33. Isn't it interesting? Now Pharaoh and the Egyptians can't wait for the Israelites to leave. Why weren't they picketing the palace when the Egyptians had the Hebrews in slavery for all that time? Why didn't a righteous Egyptian say, slavery is wrong? Why did it take their firstborns to die before they finally wanted the people of Israel to be free? Why did it take that? And what's it going to take in some of the areas that we're maybe blind to for us to wake up and just say, that's wrong because it's wrong, not because it affects me personally or I'm not going to deal with it until it thuds on my doorstep. No, 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 no. Things are right and wrong. And there should have been some Egyptians, and perhaps there was because a mixed multitude does leave in the Exodus and not all of them are Israelites. But why did they wait until... Their own lives were perhaps at risk. The devil said it in the book of Job. Skin for skin, all that a man has will he give in exchange for his life. Why does it take the threat of our own mortality for us to do the right thing? But God knows how we are. And so the people took their dough 
They had been told, no leaven, sweep out the leaven. Before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up or wrapped in their clothes, this is how they carried it on their shoulders, the unleavened bread was the original fast food. They had to get out of Egypt quickly. That was a joke. You guys should... I know it was relatively weak, but it was still a joke. Now, the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. So get this. They packed up their dough. They wrapped it. Remember, I I took you through the feast of the Passover and talked to you about the Afi Komen. Remember that? That's the linen bag that they put the matzah in and they hide the centerpiece of the matzah till the end of the Passover meal. Get this, they wrap the dough in linen. I wonder if this is some of the origins of the afikoman bag in the Passover meal, I don't know. But they wrapped it up, they wrapped up their dough. This would be a problem for me because I would have been you know, pounding out a pizza dough and oh, well, we gotta go, come on, man. But anyway, do you know for the Israelites... They had lived in this land for 430 years. How old is America? 250, 60 years? They had been in Egypt longer than we've been a nation. This is all they knew. It had to be a bit unnerving to pack a bag and be told you're just going out and you're going to discover this promised land and where are we going? And Moses might say, I don't know. And Aaron might say, he's not good at asking for directions. You know, he's a typical man. Just pack your bag. How many of you are last-minute packers? Anybody a last-minute packer? You wait, you know, to the very end, throw a few things in the duffel bag. Somebody close to you says, you don't even have your toothbrush. Your response, I'll borrow yours. It'll be fine. (laughs) No, it will not be fine, right? And so they've got the unleavened uh, dough leaving in haste. And they went door to door, get this, around Egypt and asked for money and clothing. Could you imagine? And the Lord gave them favor. Imagine knocking on your Egyptian neighbor's door. Hi. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I'm from Israel. I live in Goshen. Hey, uh, wow, that's, that's a pretty dress that you've got back there. Could I have that? Could you imagine doing that? And I'm a little short on money. Do you mind giving me some gold and some of your silver? Are you good with that? Oh, sure. <laughs> Take it. How many of you have so much stuff in your house that you can totally resonate? How many of you, when that guy drives by with that truck that has way too much on it, and he's the metal picker-upper, you say, oh, stop here. You could spend the next week taking stuff out of my yard, Right? Well, the Egyptians were giving them clothing and money. And there were two possibilities of what the Israelites could do with the money and the clothing. One, this is what helped build the tabernacle later on in the book of Exodus, chapter 25. And remember, the tabernacle was a tent, but it had all the different furnishings. Option B, what you did with the money, was you helped Aaron build a golden calf. And it seems to me, brethren, that the same options are available today. We get money. Here we are as Americans. We're more than blessed. Most of us are in a pretty good financial position. 
And we can either take our money and build God's kingdom. I'm talking about the excess. I'm not talking about, you know, you got bills to pay and all of that. Or we can make our golden calves. Hmm. I wonder which way that's tipping for most of us. And all God's people said, ouch. I feel you. I'm preaching to myself as well. But this is what happened with the people. And they plundered the Egyptians. The Lord gave them favor. Look at the end of verse 36. They plundered the Egyptians. That is a military idea of when you won a war, you would plunder your enemy. You would take booty, whatever you wanted, you would take. And it's as if Israel has just won a war against Egypt, but they didn't fight. Who fought? God. See, brethren, the battle doesn't belong ultimately to me. It belongs to the Lord. And I'm going to be a co-heir with Christ one day, inheriting his kingdom, not because I won the battle, but because the battle is the Lord's. Amen? And I'm going to be a co-heir with Christ and receive everything that he has for me because I am the bride of Christ. I am an adopted son. Amen? You're an adopted son or daughter. And so Israel fulfills the word to Abraham many years before. God said to Abraham, Know for certain, Genesis 15, 13, and 14, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And I, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And I showed you that scene in the book of Numbers Whereas Israel was coming out with their unleavened dough and their silver and gold and rejoicing, the Egyptians were digging graves for all their firstborn. Quite a contrast. And so now the sons of Israel start the Exodus. 37, we'll move quickly. They journeyed from Ramses, uh, might have been some sort of military city, to Sukkot. Sukkot means a tabernacle. It's, there's actually a feast of Sukkot. It's the last feast in Leviticus 23 of the seven that are celebrated by Israel. So Sukkot means a shelter. So they departed from Egypt. The first stop was, was Ramses uh, and then to Sukkot about a day's journey. Notice how many people left uh, Egypt. They had entered with 70 people. They left with 600,000 men on foot aside from children and women, and a mixed multitude, either by either foreigners or maybe by intermarriage. NIV says, many other people also went up with them, along with the flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. If the number 600,000 is accurate, that was just the men. So that would mean that plus women and children, we have at least a million maybe over 2 million people or around 2 million people who leave Egypt in the Exodus. Can you imagine being Moses? <laughs> you got to lead 2 million people to the promised land? That's a job. Can you imagine Moses just turning around and looking at this mass of humanity and thinking, all we got is some crackers. <laughs> What are we gonna, how are we going to feed these people? They're going to have to learn to rely upon God. And out into the desert they go, from Ramses to Sukkot. And there's even foreigners who have believed on the Lord, it would appear, and 
joined the people, maybe other people groups who had been in slavery in Egypt were there as well. And out they go. And there's some scholars that struggle with this 600,000 number. They're like, I think the Hebrew language allows for it to be more like 25,000 people. That's still a big number, right? But do you know why most scholars struggle with the big number? Because they're naturalists. (laughs) Uh, There's already been a ton of miracles going on. God can take care of a couple million people in the desert. Amen? 25,000, a couple million. Read the book of Numbers and you'll see a repetition that it actually was 600,000 foot soldiers And there's that many people out there. And it's a lot of people to take care of. And a lot of people who could complain. And let me ask you, how did they do in the desert? Well, if you're a VeggieTales fan, you know the song. We didn't have a lot of fun in the desert. (laughs) It went very poorly. In fact, there were only two men who essentially honored the Lord that whole time and believed that they could take the land despite the giants and all of that. You know who they were? were? Joshua, whose name is really the Hebrew form of Jesus. He was the right-hand man of Moses and Caleb. Only two men. And you know why Israel didn't inherit the promised land? Their kids did, but the first generation didn't. One word. You know what it was? It was unbelief. They simply wouldn't believe God. And sometimes I read my Bible and I'm like, I can't believe the people of Israel. How, they, how could they wallow, wallow in unbelief after being saved by the blood of the Lamb and experiencing all these miracles of God? And then I look at my own heart. I've been walking with the Lord for three decades plus. And sometimes I look at my own heart and I struggle with all the same things that we all struggle with. And sometimes like the dad in Mark chapter 9, I say, oh Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Forgive me of my sin and prayerlessness and whatever else you can make your list. Forgive me, Lord. Wash me. We all struggle. But I want, I want to dig out a name for you. You know Caleb, his name literally means dog. That's Caleb's name. And in the Hebrew picture language, dog is defined as all heart. Does that not define a dog or what? Dogs are all heart. Cats are definitely in question. Okay. I had to go there. But anyway, their salvation is definitely in question. But okay, so get this. So there there are dogs. There's actual stories of dogs whose owners die And the dog will sit on the owner's grave and not move. Dogs are faithful. They are all heart. Now now hear me out. Listen. That's what Caleb was. Do you know why Caleb finished well? You know why he inherited the promises? Because he wouldn't leave his master's side. He was faithful. And my cry to God is, oh, Lord, make me a Caleb. Make me a Joshua. If indeed there were two million people that left uh, Egypt, and let's just take the 600,000 foot soldiers, which were just the men, that tells us that of 600,000 people, only two believed 
the Lord fully, fully follow the Lord. That's how the Bible describes them. And I'll tell you what, it causes me to have to cry out, oh God, help me to be found faithful. It's so easy to go the other way. Now it came about at the end of the 430 years to the very day, maybe the very anniversary of the day that they entered Egypt, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So all, you could say, God's army left, even though God had fought the battle. And now some final Passover instructions. This is why Passover is a night to be observed, 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord, ESV. It was a night that the Lord kept vigil, NIV. The shepherd was watching over his flock by night, if you will. And that night, the Lord did a mighty work. He was standing guard. He watched over the houses of his people, and he judged the oppressor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron 43, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat it. Why? Because if a person doesn't know the Lord and is not in covenant with the Lord, when we do communion here at this church, I will often say, if you're a Christian, communion's for you. If you're not a Christian, become one. <laughs> but when the unleavened bread or the cracker and the juice come by, it's a, it's a memorial to the Lord. That means you're in covenant with him. I remember some years ago, I had a friend, I had invited him to church, and he definitely was not walking with the Lord. And the communion elements came by. And I watched fear strike him. He kind of had a reverence for what was going on. And he let it pass because he was not a Christian. And I think that this is essentially what's being said. The ordinance of the Passover is for people in covenant. Every man's slave, and slavery was a real thing in the ancient world, purchased with money, after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat it. Let's say that you're working on a project for a couple of weeks and you got hired on, but you're not in covenant with the Lord. You don't eat the Passover. It's only for those who are in covenant with the Lord. And if you want to eat it, there's only one simple requirement. It's a small procedure for the males. <laughs> oh, you want some lamb? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you about the covenant God of Israel. And then there'll be a small procedure in the back room. <laughs> Would that test how serious you are about whether or not you truly want to be in covenant with the Lord? This is not just say a prayer and you can eat. This is, uh, <laughs> we're going to see if you're serious about following. Now, it is to be eaten in a single house. That is, it's not to be eaten outside. You shall not bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break a bone, uh, break any bone of it. We'll come back to that. But they were behind the door on the Passover night, and so it's to be eaten behind the door. You don't bring it outside. You don't go outside. It's a family meal. All the congregation are to celebrate this. It's one night of celebration is the Passover, Nisan 14. We've studied that. If a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land. This anticipates the promised land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it because, of course, it's a celebration of salvation. The same law shall apply to the native, as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, 
And it came about on that same day, final verse, that the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. That must have been an incredible moment. Sometimes the biggest moments of our lives, we don't quite realize always what's happening. But they went out. Now, I'm going to take you to John 19, and we're done. Ask the worship team to come on up behind me. So did you notice how it says you shall not break a bone of it? John chapter 19. So Jesus, as God's lamb, has entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, presenting himself as the lamb that was to be selected. He spent the week there being investigated, and he proved himself to be the unblemished lamb. He answered every question flawlessly. He swept the leaven out of his father's house. And then Friday was approaching. Passover was approaching. Thursday or Friday. And Jesus was getting ready to die. How many of you have been watching The Chosen? Raise up your hand. Okay. It's really well done. They do take some liberties with some of the dialogue, but the essential gospel stories are there. In season two, I'm about to ruin it for some of you. Okay. It's just a small portion. And you have to forgive me. Okay, so Jesus is approaching uh, the temple. And he's about to go heal the man at the pool of Bethesda. At the pool of Bethesda. And as he's entering the temple area, he looks. And there are, I think, about four men dying on crosses. You guys remember this scene? And he looks at the people dying on the crosses and no words are needed because you know what he's thinking. That's where I'm going to end up. And the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the ultimate lamb, was placed on the cross, John 19. And the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, verse 31, John 19, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for it was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might take them away. They didn't want to leave the, per the criminals on the crosses or at least the so-called criminals. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. Both of these men had interacted with Jesus. One of them had come to faith. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who was seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, says John, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Notice, not a bone of him shall be broken. That's Psalm 3420 and Exodus 1246. The only way you could get a breath if you were on a cross is they would put a little platform under your feet and you pushed up to expand your lungs to get a breath. And when they broke your legs, you couldn't push yourself up anymore. So you would suffocate and die. And they broke the legs of the first man and of the other. And they had come to Jesus expecting to do the same. And he was already gone. See, God was in control. And Jesus was going to fulfill the Passover imagery that not a bone would be broken. And just to assure it, a Roman soldier took a spear and shoved it into his side, and he bled blood and water. I have the chance to do many 
weddings, and it's always a joy to stand up here and do a wedding. And I often go back to the garden when from Adam's side came Eve, his wife. She was taken from his side. And God did a surgery, and he closed up the flesh at that place, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the last Adam, now fast forward all the way to the gospel, the church, his bride, comes from his wounded side. See, God, through the blood of the lamb, brings us into, in, into covenant. And that's how we are washed and made clean and whole. Father, thank you for your living word. We've tackled a, a tough uh, section today, but thank you for your people's attention and hunger to know you better. Lamb of God, thank you for your wounded side. More than that, thank you for your death on the cross for me. Thank you that you were willing to step in and take my judgment. Thank you that through you we are saved if we simply will turn and believe. Help us to be like Joshua's and Caleb's who fully follow you. Thank you for your patience with us as we navigate this life. Sometimes we stumble, Lord, and we're grateful that you are patient with us, but I pray that you would make us more like you with your head and heart bowed if you're not sure that you're a Christian, if you, maybe these images are all new to you, but you are starting to get the idea that the only way to be saved is to trust in the merits of Christ. In his finished work and his resurrection from the dead, then trust him now. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Just simply cry out. You don't have to have perfect words. Jesus, save me. I turn from my sin and I place my trust in you. Save me, Lord. He is faithful. If you've been wandering, and maybe this is a time where the Lord has shown you something where you know you need to come home, this would be a great time to get things right with the Lord. And if you are one of his covenant kids and you feel like your walk's going well, then bless the Lord and rejoice and celebrate and let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. Would you stand?